0: Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Just as the existential question of why individuals succeed and fail vexes every aspect of both public policy and personal debate, so too with nations. History tells us of the rise and fall of nations. It gives us clues about economics, demographics, planning and even how the individual drive for success scales up to impact whole countries. But of course, like everything else, we see clear and precise metrics to try and make business decisions, geopolitical policy decisions, and simply anticipate the future to make a better world. My guest, Rukar Sharma, tries to do just this in his new book, The Rise and Fall of Nations. Ruker Sharma is the Head of Emerging Markets and Chief Global Strategist at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, and it is my pleasure to welcome him to the program today to talk about the rise and fall of nations. Ruker, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Great to join you today. Thanks, Jeff.
0: Well, thanks so much for doing this. First of all, as you started to look at this history of the success and fall of nations – Is there a difference in looking at the contemporary success and rise and fall of nations versus the deep historical aspect of this?
1: Yeah, you know, like the way that I've approached this book is that it is really a practitioner's guide uh, to the rise and fall of nations. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, I think that most of these kind of books which are written are typically written by academics. And the main issue I have with all this academic work is that they tend to sort of look at History with a very long sweep and try and sort of make forecasts about the future, also which are very long. As I mentioned in the book, that the old rule of forecasting used to be that you make as many forecasts as possible and you keep reminding people when you're right. <laughs> the new rule of forecasting now is that you forecast so far out in the future that neither you nor I'll be here to know whether you're right or wrong. So, what I've tried to do in this book is to basically keep the time horizon to what is realistic for most practitioners. And by practitioners, I mean people such as investors or business people, CEOs, or anyone sort of uh, like a politician who is answerable to the people over the uh, next five to 10 years. So I'm looking at factors which are relevant to determine the rise and fall of nations over the next five to 10 years and not something which is much beyond that because A, I believe that what happens after 10 years is really very hard to forecast. In fact, most good forecasters will tell you that anything beyond five years uh, in terms of making a forecast is like making a random guess. And the second point is that most practitioners don't have that luxury of sort of telling people, come back and check with me after 10, 20 years, how things worked out. So I'd say that the factors I'm focused on are very much over the next five to 10 years. And possibly those factors are very different from what you ex- what explains the rise and fall of nations, let's say, over 100 years or 200 years, as typically the academics like to go on about.
0: Talk then about some of the key metrics, some of the key things you look at in making those analyses over the 5- to 10-year time horizon.
1: Yeah, so I'd say that uh, it sort of covers a, you know, a, a three uh, category of factors. Um, the first one uh, has to do with politics, which I think is very important. And what I show in the book is that The longer a leader stays in power, the worse it is for a nation. And typically, especially um, for a developing country, the best time that economic reforms are carried out, which are growth-enhancing, happens to be in the first couple of years of a new government coming to power. So to me, I find this very sort of uh, illustrative, which is that it's really the first two years where you get the maximum bang for the buck from a new government. And the longer a leader stays in power, the worse it is. I call this chapter the circle of life. And the reason I call it the circle of life is that many nations seem to be stuck in the circle, which is that they only tend to carry out economic reforms when they're to the wall. Yeah. And then we end up getting a revival when they carry out the reforms, but the revival then again sows the seeds of complacency, which then leads to possibly another crisis and setback. And so many nations are not able to progress over time because they're constantly caught up in the circle of life. Uh, but that's just the reality. So, for me, if I want uh, from a political standpoint to forecast which nations are going to do well, I would sort of back those nations which are electing new reformers to power. And the longer a leader stays in power, the worse it is for a nation. So, that's the political aspect that I look at uh, in the book. Another aspect I focus a lot is on demographics. And wh- what I mean by demographics, which is that uh, the Economic growth of any nation is determined by two factors broadly. One, way of looking at it. One is the increase in the labor force, and two is the increase in productivity. The increase in labor force is what we speak about in terms of demographics. Uh, and I think that this is a very important point which we don't pay enough attention to. As I show in the book, that the single most important reason why the global economy today is growing at a pace which is far uh, less compared to what was happening a decade or two ago is because the demographics of the global uh, marketplace have changed significantly. Not only are people aging more rapidly, which we know about, but the fact is that we are seeing a big decline in the increase in the world's population and also an increase in the world's working age population, which are people in the age cohort of 15 to 64. So I'd say that that is possibly the single most important reason why the global economy today is much weaker, just because we don't have a big addition in the workforce taking place across the world. Take the case of the United States. In the United States, the working age population of this country was increasing at a pace of one and a half percent a year for much of post-war history. That pace now is down to below half a percent. So straight away, one percent gets lopped off your potential growth rate of the economy. And there are many nations in the world, from Russia to Japan, where the population, the working-age population, is contracting. So in Japan, there's so much angst about why that economy can't grow. But the fact of the matter is that when your working-age population is contracting, a very significant driver of your economic growth is in reverse gear. So therefore, you can't move forward uh, at a very fast pace. So I, I focus a lot on demographics. That which countries have good demographics, most of those nations today are in uh, Southeast Asia or, or in or in Africa, you know, where you have that, or parts of South Asia, and I make it very clear that demographics is not destiny, but it is a necessary, although not a sufficient condition, to create high economic growth. So, demographics is the other sort of thing that I look at, and then there are other factors in terms of which I look at to see whether a country's economic growth rate is sustainable or not. For example, inequality. I have an entire chapter dedicated to good and bad billionaires, Uh, and my uh, point here is that if you look at the billionaires of a nation, that should tell you about whether uh, the attitude of the people is likely to be pro or against wealth creation. The more good billionaires a nation has, the more the chances that the attitudes are positive. The more the bad billionaires, the more the chances that there's going to be a populist backlash against wealth creation in in a nation. And how do I distinguish good and bad billionaires? A good billionaire for me is somebody who's creating wealth on his own or her own and in industries which are deemed to be uh, productive, uh, such as technology, manufacturing, pharmaceuticals. On the other hand, when you have billionaires in industries such as uh, real estate, mining, oil and gas, in those kind of sectors, if you have uh, a lot of billionaires, it is uh, generally perceived as being bad because a lot of that wealth is created through government connections, or through sort of gaming the system, rather than creating wealth on your own uh, and uh, doing it on the back of innovation. Um, And then I have some other softer factors, such as geography, that if you look at the economic growth of many nations, it's typically taken place if the nation lies in the right trade routes. Uh, And I think that, you know, so today whether it's countries like Dubai or Sri Lanka, these are countries which are in the right trade routes and so on, and so have benefited historically. America's, and you know, the fact that it's had uh, it's had such a good geographical uh, spread in terms of the rivers that run through it, it's something which has really helped America also do very well uh, over time. So I look at geography as well, and then I have some other factors such as a contrarian factor, which is the curse of the cover story. Mm. And the point I make here is that if a nation makes it to the cover of a popular magazine, such as Time Magazine, as an example, generally it means that that nation is about to not do well in the next five years why is that that's because by the time the editors of a publication are emboldened to put a trend or of a nation doing really well on its cover generally that trend is about to exhaust itself and i show uh, based on mathematical evidence why that's uh, the case and how that is the case and the flip side is that if a nation's basically put on the cover of a magazine in a very negative way That's typically the turning point for a nation to do better in the subsequent five years, because it goes back to my original point about politics, that nations tend to only reform when they have their back to the wall, they're facing a crisis, and are electing a new leader to come and enact some change, not when nations are cruising uh, and uh, earning the plaudits of the global uh, commentariat. So these are some of the factors that I really focus on uh, in trying to figure out whether a nation's doing well or not. And the key thing I I say in my book is that it is extremely important uh, to not get focused on just one factor. So I think that if you just focus on one factor, that's when you could end up getting in real trouble. Because like often we tend to sort of view a nation just based on one news item or one factor, and we sort of miss out the other things which are happening in that country. Uh, So that's really the drift of what I try and sort of say in this book.
0: I want to come back to this issue of demographics and the shrinking of the working age population in some of the more developed and advanced countries and seeing an increase sometimes, many cases, of working age population in countries that are not experiencing real growth and the degree to which immigration and moving populations around might have an impact on all of this worldwide.
1: Yeah, no, I, you know, like as I say in the book, that I think that demographics is a global challenge today. Uh, it is something that most nations are, are, are facing today, and there are three ways that you can uh, counter this demographic uh, headwind, right? So, and what are these three ways that you can counter the demographic headwinds that, uh, that, that nations are facing? One is through immigration. Two is by increasing the female participation in the labor force. Or three is in terms of increasing the retirement ages uh, so that more people sort of work, uh, work longer. And, of course, there's a fourth aspect which is out there, although it's hard to quantify it, uh, which, has to do with, uh, which has to do really with the um, uh, robots or increasing robots. So one thing I mentioned in the book is that do not pay the robots because the robots are coming – how to help uh not to sort of take your jobs away because the demographic turn is such that a lot of the working age population is shrinking but yes immigration is key i think countries from canada to australia have shown how much immigration done well uh can sort of help a nation keep growing uh and that's something which is true even in the united kingdom you know that even though the uh, it the vote in brexit was seen as a vote against immigration and the consequences of the uh, sort of backlash against uh, immigration uh, but the key is that, e- that even in the UK, the economic growth they achieved over the last uh, few years was mainly because of immigration, as the organic population of the country was just not growing. So I think that's the key thing, which is that immigration is a positive, but the political reality is that if it begins to tear the social fabric of a nation you will get a backlash, and that's what I think we're seeing in the world today.
0: What do you see in terms of potential as you look at certain countries? There's often those countries that we see that if you go through the list of, of all of these things that we're talking about, or certainly a lot of them, you see nations with a great deal of potential that aren't achieving those potentials. What are the things that mostly interfere with that level of achievement?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, like, these are, these are some of the rules that I speak about. I think that if a, like, you know, one thing I speak about, spe- you know, like, is the fact that if the government is too big and too meddlesome, so an entire chapter dedicated to the perils of the state, which is that typically countries which have done well have done so by by sort of running efficient, uh, you know, like, and right-sized governments. A real problem in Europe today, I find, is that the role of the governments is is like really excessive and far too big and and too meddlesome I mean from France to italy the I mean, the sort of regulatory burden that they have to deal with in those countries is incredible, or the level of government spending is very high it 's a mistake that Brazil also made, which is that the uh, level of government spending in Brazil is very high in fact you know for a welfare uh, uh, it's a welfare state country even though it doesn't have the income to support it so I think that uh, big welfare state problems are uh, are a real problem for many of these countries mm-hmm. uh and i think that the other sort of issue uh that i uh, that i speak about uh is also the fact that um, we have a, a, a that if countries do not focus enough on uh, uh on getting more women into the workforce such as korea taiwan that can also end up being a real problem for economic growth In a nation, Uh, so I'd say that the uh, that the government's role is very important, but it's about right-sizing the government, not about uh, having it too big and you know sort of interfering with what people are doing. So, therefore, there's an entire chapter dedicated to the perils of the state, and it shows you that how in many countries, uh, such as India and and uh, uh, and even in uh, other nations in uh, Eastern Europe, sometimes the government can be like I mean, like interfere too much with economic activity.
0: To what extent do normal economic cycles play a role in this? You talk about countries, for example, that have managed to maintain substantial growth rates of 6% or more for at least a decade.
1: To what degree yeah. do,
0: do economic cycles play a role in the rise and fall of some of these countries?
1: You know, for example, the most important rule that I have in the book is something called the kiss of debt. Uh, you know, you, like it, you, like it, you speak about economic cycles, and to me that's really critical, which is that if a nation takes on too much debt over a short time horizon which would define as five years that nation always gets into trouble in the next five years so you know there is no way out which is that countries which take on too much debt can do well for a while but they're but they're borrowing from the future and there is no free lunch there is payback time I think this was very apparent last decade in the Western world when you had a massive increase in debt which took place between 2003 and 2007 including in the United States and this decade I'm really concerned about China Because the amount of debt that China is taking on uh, is really unprecedented. Uh, In fact, there's one statistic that captures this, which is that at the peak of the U.S. housing bubble, it was taking $3 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth in the United States. Now, typically, debt and GDP are supposed to move hand in hand. In China today, it's taking more than $4 of debt to create a dollar of GDP growth in China. So, you know, that for me is... Is very critical these debt cycles, right? If a, that's not the level of debt, but it's the increase in debt. If a nation takes on too much debt over a short time horizon, that nation always gets into trouble.
0: Is all debt the same? The degree to which some of it is invested in the country and in long-term growth potential does that make a difference, or is debt simply debt?
1: No, I think it, I mean like it makes a difference. But if but you know what our work sort of shows, you know. Uh, which I refer to as the work I've done with my team, is that, uh, is that if a nation takes on too much debt over a five-year time horizon, which I define that if a country's debt burden increases by more than 40% as a share of its economy over a five-year time horizon, then regardless of what that debt has been taken for, the country sort of gets in trouble over the next five years. By trouble, I mean, there's a 100% probability of a major economic slowdown and a 70% probability of a financial crisis. Those are very, very high odds that we're speaking about here. Mm-hmm. So I'd say that, uh, that that yes, the quality of debt can matter. and in the case of China, in the case of Japan, in the case of Italy, if the debt is held just by domestic investors and there are no foreigners who, uh, who hold their debt or come calling for their debt, you can possibly avoid a crisis. But the problem is that just avoiding a crisis by itself, is not is not great because even if you avoid a crisis what can happen is that that debt can sit on uh, sit on the books of the country and depress economic growth of a country for a long period of time uh so i'd say that if you take on too much debt over a short time horizon you're always likely to get into trouble regardless of the quality of debt or or like what you have taken and even if you avoid a financial crisis i don't know if that's any good because it will still lead to a major economic slowdown and possibly a more protracted economic slowdown because you've never quite cleaned up the books of the bad debt in that country.
0: What role does economic inequality play in looking at the chances and the potential of countries?
1: Now, I think that's a great question, but and this is how my rules have evolved. A decade ago, like my broad thing was that if a country did well in terms of economic growth over time, it would, it would, income inequality would sort of solve for itself. Now that's not the case because last decade, what we have seen is that income inequality has increased across countries at a very rapid pace, and the and both the spread in income inequality in terms of the number of countries witnessing in, income uh, inequality increases and the magnitude has increased. So now, so therefore, I've tried to include an entire chapter in this book to deal with that. titled Good and Bad Billionaires as i uh just spoke about mm-hmm. and for me this is an an advanced warning system you know like a lot of the economists have data such as gini coefficients, etc to talk about income inequality and my point is that that's too backward looking and it's too sort of random we don't get enough data updates on that my thing is how do you judge today if a nation is likely to turn against wealth creation because of too much income inequality so therefore i've come up with this concept of good and bad billionaires uh, and, the, and I look at three vectors here when um, talking about good and bad billionaires. The one vector I look at, as I mentioned, is does a country have too many billionaires as a share of its economy? Two is that does a country have too many good or too many bad billionaires? Uh, what's the ratio here? And three, that the number of billionaires who have inherited their wealth versus the number of billionaires who have accumulated wealth over time because of uh, their own innovation uh, and uh, expertise and so when I put these three factors together I then try and judge okay which countries have good billionaires and which countries are bad billionaires and and which countries therefore are most susceptible to an increase in uh, a populist backlash which sort of leads to uh, uh, uh... reforms being put on the back burner and the entire focus of a nation turning into just redistribution of wealth rather than growing the pie.
0: One of the things you talk about is the importance of keeping an eye on the locals, on local individuals to determine countries that might be near crisis or in recovery. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, you know, like, um, so my entire uh, research here that I've done shows that often when you have a financial crisis in a country, we blame foreigners for it, uh, that you know, the, the foreigners are the ones who are pulling money out and running away from that country. And what I try and show in the book is that it that it is really the locals uh, who tell you uh, or, or give an advance warning indicator about what's happening in their country, that if the local people in a country, especially local businessmen, are taking money out of a country, that should tell you that they are sensing something which is not right with the way the system is working. And uh, so you should pay much more attention to the behavior of locals the, then you show it to the behavior of foreigners. Uh, so if you look at the financial crises from Mexico in 94 to Russia in 98, all these countries, if you look at it, yeah, they, that the locals uh, are the ones who first took their money out long before the crisis broke out. I'd say about two years before the crisis broke out, there was a big increase in the locals taking their money out. And the final people to leave the door are always the foreigners. So, yeah, so when the foreigners are leaving the door, it leads to the crisis and it leads to chaos, but an advance warning uh, is that before the stampede begins on the way out, look at what the locals are doing. If the locals business people in particular are taking money out of the country, that is a vote of no confidence and the opposite too, which is that often after crisis gets over the, like among the first people who find value in a country is uh, are the locals that they start bringing their money back in two thousand two two thousand and three. That was a very important indicator to me that a boom is about to begin in emerging markets because from countries from Indonesia to China, a lot of the locals were bringing their money back to the country. uh, And that was telling you that a lot of the cleanup has happened in these countries, such as Indonesia, which had suffered a major banking crisis in the late 1990s. And the time for economic growth was once again uh, resuming.
0: And finally, as we look today around the world, what are the countries we see that are showing potential, that are showing all of the positive signs that we've been talking about in terms of, of growth over the next four to five years? And what are the ones that are looking very negative?
1: Yeah, so I think that, you know, for me, the, the countries which are looking good today include the United States because it, it ranks relatively well on, on many of the rules. It ranks countries like uh, Germany in the developed world as well. And then in the emerging world, I think there are countries from Indonesia, Philippines, uh, Poland, Czech in the Eastern uh, European region, Romania, in Latin America, I think Peru, even Argentina is showing signs of turning around and moving for the better over the next five years. So these are the countries for me which are doing relatively uh, well or and likely to do well in the next five years, because I'm really going to look forward here than being caught up in the moment. And the countries for me which are not looking that good today are countries which are more dependent on China and China itself. Uh, for reasons that I mentioned in this interview, I'm very concerned by the massive debt buildup in China. So even though the economy is growing currently at 6% a year. The debt buildup is just incredible because it just sort of tells you that this space is far from sustainable. And the longer they continue to mount this debt burden, the higher the probability that something sinister happens in the years ahead. So China, for me, is a big deal. In terms of what's going on, and countries which export a lot to China, for me, uh, aren't looking that great. Which includes countries in Africa, from Nigeria to possibly South Africa, where the prospects don't look that great. And then you have some of the more commodity-exporting countries, which I think over time will not do well, uh, despite the fact that they've done okay for now, such as Australia. And then the countries, you know, there's some countries which are middling in the in the average. I think those countries are in Europe, where you have some good, some bad. Uh, that they look good from a contrarian standpoint because everyone's given up on them. On the other hand, the cleanup is far from over, so they're sort of ambling along. But the one country I am negative in Europe, for example, is France. That I say that in France, the government is too big, too dysfunctional, there's too much power in the hands of uh, the people in Paris, uh, much to the chagrin of the rest of the countryside, and I don't see that country doing that well. So that's the smattering, really. So I have a last chapter in the book with sort of is called good, average and ugly that sort of uh, categorizes countries as good, average, and ugly uh, across these three categories
0: and can countries change in the middle of one of these cycles? Can the metrics change can, can a country like china, for example let 's address your concern can can it adapt? can it make changes given where it sits today
1: oh absolutely. oh yes of course so this is a you know this is a reference guide it 's a dynamic. It's a dynamic scoring mechanism. Uh, it it can change. Um, you know, China, for example, if it sort of eases up on its uh, debt accumulation, uh, then I think that it, uh, things can change there. If if the currency falls and finds a new equilibrium uh, level rather than the current overvaluation that it is, I think that things can change. A classic country, you know, which uh, on which I've changed my mind over the last few months is Brazil. That I was very negative on Brazil for the last few years. And now what we're seeing in Brazil is something different, that, the, that we have had a change in political leadership, and all of a sudden they are sort of now carrying out major economic reforms, trying to rein in their excessive fiscal spending. And I think that things are changing for the better in, in Brazil. Now, there, there are still a lot of problems in Brazil, but at least it's moved from the ugly camp, where I would have ranked it a year ago, to more the average camp, because there's been some improvement. And I think that, that in the period of the improvement, at least for investors, it can be a very exciting time because you because you can find very cheap assets that do quite well over the medium term when a country is improving. So yes, nothing is written in stone. We have to have an open mind. Uh, and uh, I'm happy to change my mind, but I think that the entire focus on this book is to structure the conversation, it's so easy for us to just have opinions about different countries, to just come back from a country and say how good it looks or how bad it looks. But I think that what, I'm, what I've tried to do here is to focus the mind that, okay, if you really want to judge a country and how it's going to do over the foreseeable future, let's focus on these 10 things which really matter, which sort of structure the conversation rather than these you know broad white canvases which, on which we can paint anything we want and uh, loosely talk about a nation.
0: Ruka Sharma, his book is The Rise and Fall of Nations. I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Really enjoyed it. Thanks for this.
0: Thank you.